Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Mati Friedman is a former Jerusalem correspondent for the Associated Press and author of three works of nonfiction. His reporting has taken him to Israel, Lebanon, Morocco, Moscow, and Washington, D.C. Since the 2014 Gaza War, he has written considerably about the challenges facing journalists who cover Israel and the role they play in shaping the widely accepted, if not entirely accurate, narrative. After the conflict between Israel and Hamas last May, he provided some useful behind-the-scenes perspective on the bombing of the building that housed the AP Bureau in Gaza. Mati is with us now to give us a crash course of sorts in Jerusalem Journalism 101, or at least offer us some tips on how to determine fact from fiction about Israel. Mati, welcome to People of the Pod. Thanks for having me on. Mati, you've been reporting from that region for how long? I moved to Israel from Toronto when I was 17. So that was 26 years ago. Since then, I've done a few things. I worked in a dairy barn. I served in an infantry unit. I was a university student. But for most of that time, for all of my adult life, I've been a reporter here in Israel. And based on that experience, what challenges do correspondents there face when bringing us the news? Any complicated news story, foreign or domestic, poses a problem of I guess the simplification that's necessary to make it comprehensible to an audience that's far away. And that's going to be true of any news event. If you think about the reality of your own life and try to boil it down into a 600-word story, you'll see that it's not really possible. Reality is just far more complicated than a news story will allow. And, you know, when I was at the AP, this was between 2006 and 2011, we used to complain about only having 600 words in which to encapsulate the complicated realities of Israel. And in 2022, I mean, who would even read 600 words? Now it's supposed to be 280 characters or if possible, just an image. So that's a challenge that reporters have anywhere. And it certainly is true here. There are additional challenges here in part because there's so much political weight here and there's so many partisan narratives flying around and so many different players trying to influence how things are understood. As a reporter, you also have to be able to kind of walk through a very complicated political minefield in order to provide your reader with something that resembles a description of of reality. NGOs are are a big source for journalists there, right? I mean, a source of relationship, friendship, but also information. That's right. I mean, the reporters are not allowed to quote themselves. So when you're writing a news story, you can't lead with, you know, I think that, you know, you have to quote someone who seems to be an expert, or you have to seem at least to be reporting on a reality that's external to your own brain. But reporters don't really want to do that. They want to report what they think. I'm not sure exactly when this happened 15 years ago, maybe around my time at the AP 10 years ago, it became acceptable to treat NGO reports as news stories. So if, you know, a big international NGO like Human Rights Watch puts out a report, then that is a news story. And if you know the people involved, you understand that the people who work for Human Rights Watch and the people who work for the press are the same people. These are Westerners, typically kind of upper class expat types who don't have the expertise necessary to actually understand the story, but they've created a system where their opinions are news because a reporter will quote 
a Human Rights Watch report and that will become a news story. Or, you know, Amnesty International will come out with a report and that is a news story. So it's a very convenient setup for a few reasons. One is that it allows the reporters to basically report what they think as news because the people from the NGOs and the people in the press are the same social group that share the same assumptions and are basically, they share an understanding of what they're doing and they share an understanding or a misunderstanding of the country that they're in. But it's also easy. So reporters are often looking for the easiest way to get a story. And you know, spending years in a place and learning the language and really wrapping your head around what's going on in a country like Israel, getting out into the field and thinking about, you know, long-term ramifications of decisions, all that's very complicated. It's much easier to get, you know, an email from Amnesty International in English and read the executive summary and call that a news story. So it plays both to the ideological bias of many of the people in the press and it plays to their, you know, innate laziness. And I'm not saying that about everyone in the journalism world, but I think it's definitely true of a lot of people in the journalism world, unfortunately. You wrote recently an essay to help news consumers determine credible information from Israel for a Sapir journal. And one of the things that you pointed out was whether or not those journalists frame the conversation about Israel in a global context and hold it just as accountable as they do other countries, but also keeping the scope of the story in perspective. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. I mean, when I, uh, and I've written this, I wrote this in those essays from the summer of 2014, when I was a reporter for the AP, we had about 40 full-time staffers covering the story here is Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. So about 14 million people or so. And that was dramatically more staff than we had at the time covering China, which is a country of, you know, 1.3 billion people. And it was more than we had in India, which is also a country of more than a billion people. It was more staff than the AP had at the time covering all of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's more than 50 countries. So I don't think people actually need me to quantify it because I think people sense that you hear a lot about Israel <laughs> compared to other countries, but you can actually quantify it. It's really, you know, it's a fact. And when you press people on why they're so interested in this story, often people stumble. They're not really able to explain why a country that's so small is covered in such a disproportionate way. Israel, as a percentage of the world's surface, is one one hundredth of one percent. It's 0.01% of the world. And as a percentage of the landmass of the Arab world, it's 0.2%. It's one-fifth of 1%. So we're talking about a very, very small place with a level of violence that's much lower than the level of violence in many American cities. So if we look at this conflict, you know, compared to other wars, it's, you know, very clearly a conflict that is not very violent, but it's actually less deadly if you look at the numbers than the kind of violence that Americans live with all the time in their cities without thinking that a war is going on in their cities. And Americans don't really get that. They just kind of accept that this is a very important story and a really important conflict. And that if something could be done to solve this conflict, this would be kind of a huge accomplishment for the world. And I think all of that needs to be unpacked. I think it's not really in the realm of the rational. And if news is meant to be a rational analysis of events on planet Earth, then you know this story is really an indication of how things have gone wrong and how irrational considerations have entered you know what is supposed to be a rational pursuit and how people have been kind of sold a fairy tale a really mythic and largely fictional narrative that's posing as news but really isn't anything of the kind 
the Israeli-Palestinian conflict seems to be discussed kind of divorced from the rest of the regional conflicts in that arena, right? I mean, you've got (laughs) Yemen, you've got Syria, but yet it's not really woven into the regional narrative, right? Or would it be inaccurate to do so? That's a very important point. The story here is presented as being an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's really the kind of the terminology that's used to explain what's going on. But if you look at Israel's history, you'll see that most of Israel's wars have not been fought against Palestinians. Israel's fought wars against Egyptians and Jordanians and Iraqis and Lebanese. And Israel's most potent enemy at the moment, unfortunately, is Iran. And none of those players are the Palestinians. So clearly there is a regional conflict going on here in which the Palestinians are one part, but they're not the only part. And I think regional context is maybe the main thing that's missing in the story. It's kind of isolated and edited and cropped in order to provide Western readers with a simple story that has two actors, a good guy and a bad guy. That's really what the story is about. People want a bedtime story about a princess and a dragon, and that's what they're being given. And that's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? One side much stronger, more militarized, more westernized, more prosperous, and one side much less. And that's all true, by the way, if you frame it as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But for Israelis, it's not an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. If you ask the average Israeli for their you know, family story, people will say, well, you know, my grandfather fought against the Jordanians in 1948. And my father fought against the Syrians in 1973. And my grandmother is a Jew from Baghdad who, you know, got run out of Iraq when (laughs) the Muslim majority in Iraq ran the Jews out of Iraq in the early 50s. And that's a pretty standard Israeli story. It has nothing to do with the Palestinians. Because for Israelis, this is a regional story. It's a story about the Middle East. And if you look at the Arab world, you'll see that there are 300 million people. And in one corner of that world, there are 6 million Jews. And that looks a bit different than an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one reason that it's framed as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict is in order to set the Israelis up as villains. That only works if you eliminate all regional context. And I think for many American news consumers, including I think many Jews, they do imagine that, you know, the Israel-Palestinian story is a completely different story than the Syrian civil war story. I think people imagine those two things to be happening on completely different planets. The Syrian border is a 90-minute drive from the West Bank. It's not two stories. It's one story, right? You know, if I get in my car, you know, right now, it's almost 6 p.m. here. I could eat breakfast in Baghdad pretty easily if the borders were open. That's where this is. And if you understand where Israel is, and if you understand the regional context that we operate in, Israel's dilemmas become much clearer and easier to understand, even if you don't necessarily agree with, you know, how Israelis are dealing with those dilemmas. But the news story makes all of our problems and dilemmas impossible to understand. We have been talking about reporters with notebooks, people who go out and have conversations to gather the news. But what about videographers and photographers? What should news consumers be aware of when they look at the images from that region? I think we're living in a world of images and short videos and kind of really you know, shocking or emotional pictures that kind of cross our screen or pop up on Twitter. And and it's true that I'm kind of from a different generation. So just funny because I'm only 44. But, um, you know, rather really for me, that what's important is print. That's like a, that's serious journalism, which I still believe, by the way. But I know that a lot of people are consuming things in a different way. And, and people, I think, are very gullible. And I think there's something about a video that makes you think that you've seen something real. You know, you see a 17 second video of something terrible happening and it feels like you've seen something. 
And people, you know, get very emotional. It's kind of like a punch to the gut and you respond in a very visceral way. And you can forget that you have no idea where the video was shot. You have no idea what happened five seconds before, you know, the video started and what happened five seconds later. People have this illusion that they know what's going on when in fact, much of what you're seeing is nonsense. Even if it's not purposeful propaganda, sometimes it's just, you know, it's a detail taken out of context and it's just, you know, a piece of information that's floating around on the internet and it's not going to help you understand what's going on. So I'm very skeptical of anything that I see. And I understand that we're in a war of images. So, you know, Israel's opponents are going to show terrible images, you know, images that are as terrible as possible with as little context as possible. And sometimes, by the way, they're true. Terrible things do happen here. Then Israel's supporters are going to come up with other images. And somehow this is supposed to help people understand what's going on, but it won't. It's just kind of part of the very polarized and simplistic and increasingly hysterical online world that we're living in, which is one that's very hard to navigate for someone who's actually trying to figure out what's going on or you know, for a politician hoping to come up with some constructive policies or, you know, for a traditionally centrist organization like AJC that's kind of trying to, you know, do good stuff uh, and bring as many people as possible and, you know, on board in order to get some good things done. That's really not the online world. Everything in the world of, you know, these kind of highly emotional images is working against the ability to tell a complex story and actually make a positive impact in the real world. And groups like Hamas know this, right? I think you've written about where they place cameramen in certain situations, the rules that they have about cameramen outside hospitals or medical facilities. And then there's also, on the flip side, journalists have rules as well, maybe unspoken rules, that they don't want to film themselves, like they don't want to become the story. And that works against the accuracy of video as well, right? Absolutely. I think that Israel's enemies for years since the 90s have had a much more highly developed understanding of this than Israel has because Israel is, you know, a country and we're trying to do something in the real world that's complicated. We want to have, you know, schools and hospitals and roads and a functional place for people to live. When often Israel's enemies basically want a powerful image that tells a simple story. So This really starts with Hezbollah in the 90s, and I've written about that in another context in a book called Pumpkin Flowers, which is about a guerrilla war in Lebanon that I kind of stumbled into as a Canadian teenager. But it really starts back then, and and Israel's opponents, including Hamas, are really excellent at that. They understand what people want to see. They understand how how to manipulate those images, and they've done it with great success. They also understand how easy it is to manipulate most journalists. And they understand that journalists will be unlikely to spell out exactly how they're being manipulated in the cases when they understand that they're being manipulated, which is not always. And they also, I think, understand that reporters don't like you know, to show themselves or talk about themselves or the compromises that they're making in order to get the story. And I give examples of all that in those essays from 2014. But there's a reason that you know, in the images from Gaza, you'll see a lot of civilian casualties and almost no military casualties. There's a reason that you'll see heavy damage in civilian areas, but almost never a rocket launches from civilian areas. It's not coincidence. That's part of the way the story is set up. And in this case, a big part of the Western press has become kind of an amplifier for the propaganda of some of the darkest forces in the world. If you were a journalism professor preparing your students for an overseas reporting excursion to Israel, What advice would you give them to avoid this kind of manipulation and to get the story right? Or would you tell them, don't bother, don't go? 
probably tell them to get a law degree. That would be probably the most helpful thing for a journalism professor to tell people uh, planning to pursue this profession. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question because I really have become very skeptical of the ability of transient visitors to understand any stories. It's not just this one. You know, I don't think that that's true of Israel, not true of Ukraine. I think a news organization would be much wiser to find the best local journalists in Kiev and tell them to report the story, right? Lots of people know English these days. It's not the 60s. There are people in almost every country who can speak English. Thanks to the internet, people can communicate. And the idea that of sending in foreigners who will be in a country temporarily, can't speak the language, are dependent on, you know, their colleagues or questionable NGOs, you know, does that serve the purpose of explaining complicated events to readers? Probably not. And you'd probably be much better off having a few really smart locals do it for you, maybe through, you know, an American editor who would then, you know, massage their copy into something that would be more comprehensible for a Western audience. But I think that that would be a much better way to run things if we're forced to send our theoretical journalism students to Israel or somewhere else. I would say that um, the rule of thumb is that anything that's simple is wrong. And if people are kind of coming up to you and pushing information at you, you should be suspicious of the information that they're giving you. You have to be conscious of your own bias and you have to be conscious of, you know, the bias toward a simple story. I guess that's what I would say. I've become a skeptic about the whole, <laughs> about the whole setup. Conscious of the bias toward laziness, which we all have to some degree, but. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a, there's a bias toward simplicity and there's a bias toward, you know, doing as little work as possible to get the story that you need. And that's being exploited by ideological actors. The economic collapse of the press, right? There's a lot fewer correspondents. The organizations have less money and they're much more susceptible to ideological actors pushing ready-made copy at them. And that's part of what's going on. So, you know, if you're a big NGO, with hundreds of millions of dollars, you can come up to a foreign correspondent and say, here's a report. You know, we know you don't have the resources to write this report, but why don't you take ours and quote us? And the temptation to do that is great. And it happens on the left and it happens on the right. And it's one of the reasons that so much news coverage now just looks like, you know, ideological fantasies of, of different kinds. Well, thank you so much for giving us some good tips on how to apply that scrutiny effectively and try to get the story right in our own minds. Thank you so much, Madi. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 